Welcome to the Business Influencer Podcast, where we will be interviewing and exploring the success stories of entrepreneurs, business leaders, senior policymakers, and getting insights from thought leaders around the issues of the day. We will be delving into and analyzing the latest news around tech, geopolitics, finance, global business, entrepreneurship, property, leadership, law, philanthropy, and life. This podcast is available on all platforms. But for those of you who prefer to watch, uh, we have the Natural Media YouTube channel. Please subscribe and you can watch all the interviews. Uh, you can also follow the show's updates on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. Please do leave a review as it helps to get the word out and about. Uh, my name is Ninda Johal. I am the co-founder of The Natural Group, the Signature Awards and co-publisher of the Business Influencer magazine. And I will be your host for the show. In this episode, uh, I interview and speak to Alfie Best, otherwise known in some quarters as the Gypsy Billionaire. So yeah, he started life, working life really early, 14 years old, was educated in all kinds of different places as they moved around the country. But his journey is extraordinary because if I think of the word resilience and endurance and persistence, I think that describes Alfie Best. He's now the number one operator in holiday parks and gives us some insight into entrepreneurship, leadership, and interesting his views on housing. So if you want to be captivated by the journey of someone who was born in a caravan and now lives in a very nice house, then tune in, pop over, and have a listen to our latest podcast, Mr. Alfie best. Good morning, Alfie. Good morning. Um, thank you first for taking that time. I know you're an extremely busy guy. Um, I thought it'd be interesting uh, to do this podcast for a number of reasons. Um, firstly, uh, you were a winner at our Signature Awards in London. And can I say, all the judges thought you were superb. I think your journey is remarkable. And, and, and we'll talk about that journey. And I think some of the insights, having read about you and watched watched you on various uh, videos, I think there's a lot of things that our audience can benefit from hearing. Um, so, look, I want to jump straight in. Um, well, actually, no, before I jump in, let, let me just give people a bit of a pretext. Um, at the last valuation in the Sunday Times... You were valued at eight hundred million pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, you have an interesting background in that you're a gypsy, you're a you're, you're nomad. You move around a bit. That in itself brings a lot of challenges because you're not in one place at the same time. Uh, people talk about having long-term goals, but if you're on the move all the time, you wonder what that looks like. Uh, people talk about a supportive structure around you. That will be interesting to talk about because of who you are and how you moved around. And I think some of the challenges, how you built up, I read your book on some of the way you decided, made decisions, and we'll pick that up. I think when you throw all that into the pot, that becomes an interesting, interesting conversation to have. So with that in mind, let's let's go right back. Let's go to your childhood. Um, and they do say um, things that happen in your childhood can determine what happens later on in life. So some entrepreneurs are born in an entrepreneurial family, some aren't. So let's go back to you then. So you're a child. Now, t- 
to, I understand from what I've read and heard, actually, you were in business from a very, very young age because of your father. Is that right? Perhaps you can just... Over to you, Alfie. Before I start, if yeah. I can just say, firstly, thank you. Because um, never at any point did I ever think that somebody like me would be given a voice. Yeah. And to then win the Signature Award of Entrepreneur of the Year is phenomenal. And it doesn't only do justice for me, it does justice for all of the people out there that are from challenging backgrounds mm. to actually show that actually anybody can achieve their goals. And remember our goals are never achieved, it's a journey. So each time you achieve a goal, you should always have another. Yeah. Because that's what keeps us focused. So it's actually me that should be saying thank you, and I mean that. That's very kind of you to say so. But but I do. Where would you like me to start? Okay, so story has it that when you were about 12, your early recollections were your father would wake you up in the morning and say, come on, let's go, uh, and let's go and do some work. So you had that ethic from the start. And I, and I mentioned there were driveways and knocking on people's doors and... How much of an impact did that, and, and is that true? Was that at age 12? And how much of an impact did that have on you? All of that is completely true. Um, how much of an impact did it have on me? I, I really don't know, because it was normal. Um, and I'll show you some photographs of me working when I was 8, 9, 10, 11 and 12, actually laying tarmac, actually using the roller, uh, which is a machine roller that you use, yeah. uh, with my mum. You know, these were... Uh, normal that in you know gypsy and travelling families it was seen that the you know the children worked with their dad and that was how you built up your knowledge and I, I genuinely believe that gypsies and travellers have got some of the greatest minds um, of being sharp where their challenges come is being able to go beyond that glass ceiling mm. where education kicks in. Whereas for me, I've had all those challenges and we'll, we'll talk about them in a yeah. minute. Yeah. But from my background, yes, my dad would you know, get me up at five o'clock in the morning. Wow. And the reason it was five o'clock in the morning, we had to get to the tarmac quarry. They'd mix the tarmac early at say six o'clock in the morning. By the time you got loaded, because it used to come out of a big chute called a hopper, and uh, then you had to get on the back of the lorry, and, it, and this tarmac was absolutely scalding. Mm. So you couldn't fall in it or put your hands in it, you'd get third degree burns. So you had to sheet it up, and then you had to put old tyres around it, so the sheet didn't blow off when you were going down the road, to keep the tarmac warm for when you got to the job to be able to lay it. And that was just a daily occurrence. And I did that up until, I don't know, I was 14, 15, 16. So, but did you not think at that age, I should be at school? Or did, or did you think that this is what kids of my age do? In the society that I was brought up in, yeah. this was what we did. You know, um, if you take, for instance, the Asian community, yeah. right? And people say, well, they'd I'd see people complain in different areas that we stopped that they were open 24 hours a day. Yeah. To me, this was quite normal, that they would utilise, and you'd see their children working in those yep, shops. That's right. 
That's because they had that entrepreneurial spirit too. And the same as, you know, the gypsy and travelling fraternity. They were brought up like that. It was normal. You know, but where I do think that the travelling community has been let down, and it's also let itself down, as in we haven't embraced education as much as we should. Because if you can tie the two together, mm. being streetwise and educated, and you can put the two together, that's a dangerous combination. It's a powerful combination. Did I manage to do it? In a fashion. Because I'm not the smartest man, in actual fact. I'd say I'm quite dumb. But what I am is I challenge the stereotypes that are put in front of me of what it takes to succeed. Have I succeeded? No, I haven't succeeded. I'm only part way through my journey. I'll tell you whether I've succeeded on my deathbed. That's when we'll know the game is over for me. That's when we know whether you've succeeded. Because I've seen as many people go up and come down. And I've come down. Um, you know, on my journey, I worked with my dad up until I was uh, 15 or 16, knocking on doors, selling tarmac. And do you know the funny thing is, I had uh, a meeting in a, in, uh, with a team yesterday. Funny enough, Mishu was in that meeting. And I recanted the way that I sold tarmac on the door and how their sales team should put that into their sales process every day. They've started to implement that this morning. And, and I'm talking about, this was yesterday, this is today. They've already been back up and said, you know, it was eye-opening. Sometimes sales, and I'm a natural salesperson, because I never sell anybody anything. I'm looking to fulfill their needs. If you can find out what somebody's needs are, you don't need to be a salesman. You just need to be a good supplier. Do you think you became a good salesman? Oh, it's a couple of things, a couple of things. Well, firstly, you sought at a young age how to sell. It was yep. the driveways. So whether you knew it or not, you were learning the sales process. And you've just now said to me, you said two things. You said, firstly, I'm a natural salesman. And now you said, but actually, I've just taught someone how to sell better. Yes. So would you say, I, th I think you've just said, sales can be taught. You don't have to be a natural salesman. And, and maybe you learned it at the age of 12. Anything can be taught if the person is teachable. And to find out if somebody is teachable is real simple. Do they want to do it? Do they want to learn? That's like saying, I can't speak German. I'm never going to be able to learn to speak German. Well, that's because you don't want to speak German. If you want to be taught, anything can be taught. Depends how passionate the person is about wanting to learn. Okay, so your early experience was laying driveways mm -hmm. so how did you get up in how did you get into property was it was it something you came across something that was calculated how did you end up from 14 
from and, and, and from the age of four. And by the way, did you get any school? Did you go to any schools? Yeah. And 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 if you did, how did people react to you going into schools now and then? I would have thought from what you're saying. Being a gypsy, the way I would be describe a gypsy is I'm a white man in a black man's body. So I'm a black man that's white. Because I get to hear any derogatory remarks to my face. I can't, I don't have to defend myself if I decide to say that I'm not a gypsy. So all through my whole school, and I never told anybody I was a gypsy. You know, that comes with liars, cheats and thieves and all the stereotypes Mm. and derogatory bits that go with gypsies. You know, let's not kid ourselves. I'm a realist. So I hid those. I would never dare tell somebody else. I didn't tell anybody I was a gypsy up until 15 years ago. That late in my life. It was only until I'd felt comfortable enough and that I was in a position in my life that it didn't matter if I told them because my achievements at that time should have overshone any derogatory marks that somebody was going to make. But I had to feel more comfortable in that myself, in my own skin. And what I would say about that is a man has to know where he's from to know where he's going in life. And if he doesn't accept who he is, how can he ever accept to become a better person? Because he never accepted who he was in the first place. And, and do you think that drove you more, knowing who you were? I think we have two choices in life. Accept who we are, put up with who you are, and just deal with it. Or don't accept it. Take it as a challenge, embrace it, and decide to become more. Because a man that thinks the same at 25 years and gets to 50 and thinks the same as he did when he was 25 has wasted 25 years of his life. He has learnt nothing. So for me, I want to be a different person every year. When I have people say to me, you're a different person now than where you were, of course I am. How can I be the same? The... You know, the, the carvings that life does to you. Life cuts chunks out of you. It doesn't mould you in this beautiful, wonderful, you know, accolade that people throw down. Life cuts chunks out of you. And it's the people around you that sometimes scar you. And it's those cuts that will either define you as a masterpiece at your end of your life, or they will turn you into some misshapen, unbeautified object or you can be a beautiful piece of art if you let the scars come in the right way you say in your book um, excel at one thing and be really good at one thing but I did note also you didn't get into where you are now which is sort of parks and you, you went into sales you were you had a you were selling cars and you're doing all kinds was that part of the learning process while you tried to understand what you were really good at? Or, or, or did you or, or did you just... I mean, some people say you should have a focus and have a long-term strategy. Some people say you should just jump at an opportunity when you see it. 
how would you describe yourself? Because your early journeys had you sort of jumping and popping between different Let, bits. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah, that was a learning curve. And a learning curve, and I am an advocate for being focused on what you're doing. That's right. What you enjoy, what you love. A man that loves what he's doing will do it tenfold more because he enjoys it. Football player goes onto the pitch. He doesn't go onto the pitch and start that journey because he wants to make money. He started that journey because he loves football. The money is a sidestep to it. For me, when I was started, I started solely and wholly to make money. Yeah. Nothing else. So every opportunity that threw itself at me, I grabbed like a magpie. Do I think that was the right thing to do? The answer's no. The answer's no. But the education that I got from it was unbeatable because I learned many different things. And in the society that we live in today, you no longer go to a builder for your building work. You go to a specialist, you go to a tiler, mm. you go to a plumber, you go to a bricklayer, you go to a carpet fitter. Whereas, actually, 40 years ago, people just went to a general builder. Now, they're becoming experts in their own field. And I get it. I really do get it. We all look for the expert in their field. Because I only want to deal with the expert in their field. So, in whatever job we're doing... Your customers will come to you because they want the best they can get for their money. So you went from, if I recall, uh, you said to, you, you were selling cars. Mm -hmm. You got into a dealer, a dealership. Then, if I recall, you went through a bit of a crisis because you, you suddenly hit you one day. You thought, what the hell am I doing here? I was... 20 or something, quite young. I was 18 years old and I opened up a van site, uh, sales and hire in Forestgate. Forestgate is a, a borough of East London. I had a brand new Porsche. I had a £550,000 house. I had uh, a, a van site that was £350,000 and, uh, uh, and four flats that were all owned freehold with mortgages. And I was worth in excess of a million pound by the time I'd got to 20. So I absolutely thought that I could walk on water. I really did believe, in my own mind, I was brilliant. I actually thought, and people would come up to me and say to me, oh my God, and they'd use phrases like, he's a whiz kid. And I believed it. I actually thought I was something special. Especially... On the journey from 12 to 20, living in a caravan on the side of the road and then all of a sudden in control of my own business making 150000 a year and I could walk on water. You know, it, it, it was a blessed time. But what I didn't know and didn't have was experience and the worst mistake I made, I started to believe my own hype. I started to believe who I was and what people were telling me who I was, instead of really understanding 
who I really was, which was a gypsy out of a caravan that worked hard. So, so what's your advice to people then? Never who, forget... Yeah, who get dragged into that hype? Never forget where you've come from. Doesn't mean to say you want to go back there. Doesn't mean to say you will take advice from the people of where you've come from. But never forget where you came from. Because it's very easy to go back there. It's very easy to go back there. Now, if you like it back there, shouldn't have bothered trying to go anywhere else. But if you don't like it there, and you want to be a better person, you want to provide a better living for your family. You know, there's an, an old energy. You don't have to be born rich, but it is important to die rich because it means that you worked hard, it means that you achieved your goals, and earning more money isn't about earning more money. Earning more money is the scorecard we keep. Yeah. Bitcoin and uh, other digital currencies have proven that. Before, we thought of money was backed with gold. We now know it's not, but that's what we were told. Whereas now what we realise through digital currencies, it's just a scorecard. It's a scorecard of how well we're doing. You take Elon Musk, you take um, Jeff Bezos, they don't have the money that they're painted as having. That's what their wealth is if they sold all of their shares at that given time. If they sold their shares at that time, they'd be worth half because everybody else would cash out the market. So it's a scorecard, a scorecard that your wealth is increasing. Now, I work way differently to them. And for me, Jeff Bezos is the greatest businessman that has ever walked. And not because he's the richest man on the planet. And I'll come to that in a minute. But let me go back to what happened to me. Yeah. I didn't see the recession That's of right. the 1990s coming. And I went from making £3,000 a week to losing £500 a week, not being able to pay my mortgages, to virtually the houses and the, and the properties being repossessed. And as I'm telling you this now, the hairs are coming up on the back of my head. And every time I tell this story, um, uh, they do um, it paralysed me because the way I would describe it it was like holding a ball and yesterday I had full control of this rubber ball that I could stretch and make it do things and bounce it all over the place now it had turned into this grease ball that I had no grip on yeah. it was just and I was it's just catching it. That's exactly how it was. It's exactly how it was. Yeah. And I'm, it was like somebody put a fence around the business and said, toxic, don't enter. That's exactly how it was. And how, how did you cope then? How, how did you, because this, this, this is down to mindset here, because there's a lot of people who get into that space, but don't know how to come back out. How, how, do, I, you, how do you flip it around? Look, I'm going to be honest with you, there's no magic answer. It was pure, pure luck and determination. And I had a murmur 
at 20 year old and I collapsed across the desk. Yeah. And um, I've never forgot it. Uh, I've never forgot it. Um, and they, those have profound moments. That's one of the carvings in my life. That that's a young age out. to have that. That's a young age. It's very to young age. Very young age to have. And um, I, th- it was that. You know, in, the, in a week's time, I realised I, I, I was actually sinking. Before I was trying to fathom out how to save it, then I realised I couldn't. So what I did was, I moved out of my house rented the house out as quick as I could. I put a mattress in the back of an escort van, created a bed in the back of the uh, escort van, sold the Porsche, I sold every all of the stock that was on the pitch, put it in the auction, just slaughtered it away to get the overdraft down. I then broke the, work, the, the, the pitch up into workshops and rented them out for half price. Yeah to get people in there because everybody was in the same yeah in the same boat and i found myself in a position 4 months down the road that i was just about covering my mortgages so what you did was rather than i suppose there's an insight rather than sit there kind of panicking you went for solution and you you just went right i'm just going to i want to find a solution to this and you set about doing all those things you did and so you were solution-based, and that's the true sign of an entrepreneur, isn't it? Somebody who just... There were many other people around me that walked away and just gave the keys back to their yeah. houses, walked away, yeah. and, and their attitude was, well, I ain't got a problem, the bank has. But it was one bad thing that saved me in that recession, that at the time, I thought it was the worst thing in the world, but it was that worst thing in the world that saved me. And it was a thing called negative equity. And the house had a £200,000 mortgage on it, or whatever yeah, it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it sunk to a value of 150. The van pitch had, you know, £125,000 mortgage and sunk to a value of 100. The flats, you know, they had 200 grand mortgage had sunk to a value of 125, whatever it was. But because they were below the market, that the bank could claw their money back, they didn't repossess them. Yeah. They allowed me to carry on paying it the mortgages. In, it was in their interest to keep it going. Yes, and it was be- that. But it, it's only through experience that you learn those types of things. I didn't know that was my saviour at the time. I thought it was the stake through my heart. But it wasn't. It was my saviour. And that made you stronger in the future because you've been through that dark moment. Well, the last two recessions... Makes you more resilient, doesn't it? Makes you much more resilient. The last two recessions we've benefited in. There is another one which is now coming. I think within the next 18 months or three years, we're going to be in a very bad recession. And it's about keeping your eye on the prize in the future. Trying to be, see what's coming at you. And you have to be very careful because we can all be in business working away, just assuming this is how we do business. But it's not when climate's changed. 
Look at, if, if history has taught us one thing, there is nothing, nothing that cannot not happen. We never thought we'd be on the brink of potentially a third world war. Yeah. We never thought we'd have the Black Death come across us, which is what COVID was. Who'd ever think that there was a disease that we couldn't control? And, and, and do you think going through that episode when you were 20, when the recession hit, suddenly things out of your control were affecting you, and so therefore that's what gave you the experience? Oh, 100%. And that, it's the uncontrollables. Those, those cuts and carvings, what happened to me as a mm. person, mm. have stayed with me. They're my experiences. They're my lessons. And I try to say to my son all the time, try your hardest to learn from the mistakes of others. You can't live long enough to make them all yourself. But, you know, sometimes we have to make them. It's like when your mum keeps telling you, don't put your hand in the fire, but you end up having a poke. When you get burned, won't do that again. She was right. So you recovered by taking actions. You then moved into parks. No. What I did then, I had no money. I had property that was in negative equity. And I was living in the back of an escort van, That's sleeping right. with a mattress. And I then had to find another job. So I then either had to go back tarmacking. And I really didn't want to do that. You know, when you've tasted mm. a pat on the back, you really want another. Because in its own small way, it's power that people want to hear what you've got to say. And even I learned that at a very early age, that when you're successful, people want to talk to you. When you're a failure, nobody wants to know what you've got to say. And... That's just the way it is. Because people think that you can sometimes wave a magic wand and your glimpses of success are going to rub off on them. And I get that. Because always better to talk to an expert who's done it than somebody who hasn't. How many times do we go into a pub and you see overweight, middle-aged men screaming at the TV, telling the football player who's on 30 grand a week that he's an idiot because he missed the goal. And I always scratch my head at that, thinking, and, and, you know, when you ask him about, well, you know, he doesn't know what he's doing. Wow. You know, I, that's why I don't go to pubs. <laughs> um, then I had to find something, another business, another job. So what I decided to do was some market research. Mm. But I couldn't afford market research. So I love it when businesses use these salubrious words that mean something simple. Who's busy and who's not? That's what market research means. So I drove around in my van and looked for businesses that had queues. That was my market research. We just simplify the things to get the result. It's like when people use the words, let's brainstorm. What it really means is let's have an indicative chat. But we have to find these big words to make it sound important in what we're doing. So I drove around 
and I found two businesses that were busy. One was mobile phones. Yeah. And the other was takeaway food that were always next door to schools. Yeah, I remember this story. Yeah, yeah. It's quite, quite interesting what you, your take on this. The takeaway food was too expensive to set up. You know, even back then it was like an £80,000 infrastructure to set it up. And I didn't have £80,000. And the other was mobile phones that cost nothing to set up. But it was new. It was an amazing. It was like, you got this phone without a wire. And you could actually take it anywhere and talk to people. It was a box. It was like this technology that had been beamed down from Star Wars. And I begged and pleaded for a job. And I worked there for three months in this phone shop. And what I learned was these people didn't know what they were doing. They were selling a product that was new and they were selling it to somebody who also didn't know what it did. All they did was they made a call. And that learned me that you don't need to know everything about the product you're selling. You just have to be more knowledgeable than the person who's buying it. Because that small piece of knowledge, what that customer doesn't know, you're helping making him more knowledgeable. No different than cooking an omelette. If you don't know how to do it, it looks quite complicated. The moment you know how to cook an omelette, it's pretty simple. So when I learnt the business, and I worked there and I got £70 a week, I then set up my first mobile phone shop. I had no money. So I went drove around looking for shops that were shut, that the landlords were paying rent on. I went to the agents, said, let me take the shops, give me two years rent free and I'll pay all of the rates for you while I'm in there. And I did that. So we opened up free of charge. Great negotiating argument, by the way. Well, two it, years rent it free. It works, but it works. <laughs> because at the time they were paying money hand over mm. fist just to leave them empty. So we then opened up 18 stores in 18 months. Wow. And it just exploded. And I couldn't believe how quickly success can come and leave you. And I couldn't believe how quick it could come back. But the one thing that I can tell you, success is like a beautiful woman. It loves work ethic. It loves being taken out. And it loves you spending time on it. And that's a business. I think I'll, I'll jot that down. <laughs> I have something to learn but That's there. a business. The time that you spend on it, it loves it. If you give it your time, it will give you the rewards. Some a little bit harder, some a little bit easier. So... Going from one shop to 18, it's quite a rapid scale-up. Mm. Were there problems in scaling? Did you, or was that easy? To, there must have been problems as you scale from one to 18. People yeah. and finance and... Well, more than that. More than that. There's a glass ceiling in scaling up businesses that people always get in from this... Let's just take, for instance... A plumbing business. Let's use that as a simple, we all understand what plumbing is. It's fixing the pipe so either the gas or the water 
can flow through with no problems. In simple terms. In layman's terms, so I understand it. That plumber starts on his own and he's maybe earning £500 a day and that's what a good plumber can potentially earn. So he's making £2,500 a week. That's a lot of money. I don't care what anybody says. That's a lot of money. Then all of a sudden he employs another plumber and he finds that he can manage that one plumber because if there's a problem, while he's doing his own job, it's not a problem to take the call. Yeah. And he can deal with it. And he finds that that plumber's working okay because he can check up on him quite easy. There's a, a structure which is, can be communicated. And he finds that he's maybe making £100 a day extra from employing that plumber. Yeah. So now instead of him making 500 he's making 600 a day. Now he goes and does another one and another one. And normally it gets to about five. Now he finds he can't do his own job because he's constantly managing yeah. five plumbers. Because now he's getting five calls. Plus one of them goes sick. Plus one of them leaves the job early. Plus one of them's now a professional tea drinker. And he's paying for his time while he's a professional tea drinker. When I go on site and I see builders standing there and I see five people drinking tea, I time them and I leave the clockwork running. And when they're finished, I go up to them and I tell them how much that tea has cost me for them to stand there and drink. And normally it's about £75. And that's... And what's their reaction? <laughs> why are you watching us? because you're the most expensive tea drinkers in the world. People forget about the cost of time. Mm. People forget about, and that's why a business loves you if you give it your time. You don't give it your time, it won't love you. It will leave you. So scaling. So let me, it, let me finish. Is it, is it, peop is so, it people? Any, every business is about people. Yeah. But scaling the business, when you get to those five people, you have to push through that pain barrier and go, I'm now earning less than I was. And that's mm. what happens with every business. Yeah. I'm now earning less than I was by employing these five people. And you have to accept that and push through that glass ceiling so you can take on 10. So you now become a professional manager of people. Yeah. And you now have to employ somebody under you to act as your sub-manager. And your sub-manager cannot be the best mate of your on-site plumbers. And at that point is the tipping scale. But what happens is people realise they're earning less money by employing more people. So they then think, sod this, there's no point doing it, and scale yeah. back down. Yeah. So it's that glass ceiling you have to break through. And you have to suffer the pain of earning less to get to a point where your infrastructure can implement the management that you have in place to then upscale again. And that's when your business then makes more money. How did you find making that transition? 
And when I got to five shops... Yeah, to, to, to managing and thinking like that. Was that easy or...? I realised that when I had to stop selling in the shops to get, get in my car to drive around and check on those... Yeah, that's right. And many people said to me, why didn't you hire somebody to do that job? I said, because I'd have never learned how to do the job. And it is so important that you know how to sweep the floor, make the tea, sell the phone, paint the wall, and deal with customer service. Because how can you give advice to somebody you know nothing about their role? You don't have to be yeah. the expert in it, but you have to know how the role of their job is. You have to know how the systems, process, and procedures work. Because for success to happen, System, process, procedure. System, process, procedure. System, process, procedure. Habit. Like playing an instrument. If you get a guitar and you just strum away, who's going to come and listen to you? Nobody. But if you get that guitar where you're just system, procedure, system, procedure, everybody's going to come on and listen because you're going to become a great musician. But you sold that business, didn't you? Then I did. You moved on. Why did you sell that? Well, before I sold it, what I also did was went to the landlords of the shops that were getting no rent and offered to buy them. And when I then bought them, I then rented them from myself. Yeah. And I then sold the business and I sold it to a subsidiary of Vodafone. But you held on to the property. But I held on to the property. property. So now the property's doubled in value because I was now had a blue chip company yeah. that was renting them. I'd bought them at a downgraded value because the landlord was getting no rent. And property has always been my passion. Has always been my passion. I love it. The architecture of beautiful property is like either a beautiful woman or a sculptured bodybuilder of a man that's worked on his body. That's how I look at a piece of property. I just think of them as a work of art. And it's one of the few things in that the common man like me can own and actually own a piece of history. He's buying history when you buy a piece of property. You are buying art. And that's why I love it so much. So from that property, you, you then moved... Sorry, there's a couple of other things before you moved into parks. So what I did was I then started building up my commercial property portfolio. And I did that for about four years. Yeah. Maybe four or five years. About four years. And we were very successful at it. And I loved it. And um, I, uh, I did really well at that. And I was... But I loved it. I enjoyed property. I loved property. But then I came across... Um, through my... Uh, to be fair, um, I came across the mobile home park at Romford. And um, it was the first park that I bought. And I bought it because it was historic to me. You know, I'm a gypsy. I was born and bred in a caravan. These were mobile homes. and Okay, yeah. they're not caravans, but they're actually classified as a caravan. Yeah. You know, who better to own a mobile home park than a gypsy? Yeah. You know, it's, to me, it's part of my soul. 
and I bought one, I learnt the business and moved on there with, with my family and we'd still live on a mobile home park to this day, we really would. The reason that we don't is because you never have no peace because you're the manager and you live on site and you're the owner, you're constantly, and you and it's not about problems on the park sometimes. Sometimes it's a problem with the owner's family and they want your advice because they see you as the owner, so you may have a solution. So it's a constant, and we you do need your own time to reflect on stuff. So moving on from there, you, you've now expanded. I mean, you're now one, I think you're the largest owner now. We're the, we're the largest residential mobile home park operator in Europe. We have 16,500 residents. Currently, as it stands today, we have 97 parks. And by June of this year, I'm hoping if all of our transactions follow through, we will be in excess of 100 parks. Wow. Which, I say it and I say it with a, a smile in my soul, we're the largest residential park operator in the UK and Europe to ever exist. To ever exist. So what are our goals from here? Yeah, what drives you? I was going to say, well, what drives you? What keeps you driving? Because, I mean, some people say, actually, I've done it. I'm, I'm fine now. I'm sorted. Habit and passion. Habit and passion. And what I mean by that is this. My habit is I'm a worker. I'm a worker. I get up and I go to work. That's what I do. But the passion is we're providing a solution to affordable housing that cannot be beat. And we're successful because of that. You know, you buy a new park home. There's no stamp duty. There's no land registry fee. Uh, electrics 28% cheaper, uh, council taxes band A, 50% cheaper than uh, uh, band D. A park home is on average 50% cheaper than a like for like bricks and mortar bungalow. As well as all the other benefits of living with a like-minded community. You know, we're seeing such a change in the stereotype that was perceived as mobile homes. And they've moved on. They started life as a touring caravan. Then they were a static caravan. Then they became a mobile home. Then they became a park home. And now they're referred to as a park home bungalow. They've done a complete circle where these are, to the naked eye, no different. They're a prefabricated home and it is categorically the solution to affordable housing. I wish we had more time to talk about that and maybe we'll pick that up at another one because housing is a huge problem in the UK. It has been and continues to be. Now, you, you, you said a few minutes ago that you think there's a recession coming. Yep. Um, so before we talk about the recession, did the move to America, is, is that a way of de-risking your... Your, your empire, because no. that means... Or, 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 or what was the reason behind going to America? Because you we, talked about control. Well, before, How do you control something in America? Before we went to America, we first went to Barbados. Okay. And we worked in Barbados and we've built up 
a portfolio of villas there and uh, we operate them. They're called Barbados VIP Villas and we uh, diversified there but it was still property based where we uh, buy, own and rent um, uh, villas there in Barbados. Then uh, it was only after that that I then went to America and we've started now um, in our acquisitions and we mean and categorically will do the same here as what we did uh, sorry we will do the same in America as what we've done here, here. and um, we have no appetite to be the next great American hope we just want to continue our business not to greener pastures may I add but to further pastures because we can in the the small amount of works that I've done in America, working there, I found something um, about cultural differences. In the UK, we are still held up on, do you have a degree in this or a degree mm. in that? And there is the old school tie, you know, and it only you've only got to look at the picture of Boris Johnson and um, um, our previous Prime Minister and about five others in that to realise it's not by sheer chance they all got their jobs of where they are in government. Yeah, we went to the same schools and... And we're in the same class and, you know, it doesn't, doesn't you know, doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to work that out, that it is the old school tie. And we have this glass ceiling in the UK that has held back so many entrepreneurs in the UK. And I believe that has been broken by social media to a degree. For instance, let's go back 20 years. What was the staple diet a staple diet that we all lived on for our media outlet. It was EastEnders and Coronation Street. And they were either committing suicide. You never saw anybody in any of those programmes become millionaires. Mm. We were speaking about this this morning, actually, the culture. It was of, a constant, yeah. Yeah. downtrodden, yeah. grey era. Yeah. Now... We have social media, and I've got to be honest with you, I really do believe that social media is dangerous. I really do. Mm. Because it's uncensored people's yeah. opinions by people that know nothing about it but have all got an opinion on some subject or another. We've got free and uninterrupted passage of news. So, I, But that's a whole other story. <laughs> but that was our staple diet. And let's look at the entrepreneur's that we have in this UK. I can only think of two that come to mind that are out there in the spotlight. And the only reason that they're recognisable is because they were great marketeers. One was Richard Branson. Yeah. And the other is Alan Sugar. Yeah. Because they're great marketeers. 
if they weren't great marketeers and weren't on the TV for being marketeers, like let, let's take Richard Branson for instance. I'm going to send a rocket to Mars, to outer space. Wherever he he's been doing that for 30 years. My God, he's milked that to death. And good on him, because he got it in the news. Free publicity of being able to get it out there in the media. And yeah, you saw his brand, Virgin, was always plastered all over it. I'm going to sail a balloon all the way round the world. It was the best marketing for his company's Virgin. So I just tip my hat to these people. My point is this. We never ever gave any oxygen to any other great businessmen. And you think in America, it's the culture In America, different. it's completely different. Yeah, it's culture different, isn't it? They embrace. Yeah. Now, I think there's a reason why. And the reason why, they're all immigrants. They're all immigrants. They're travelling salesmen that took the new frontier, made it their own. Whereas in the UK, the immigrant has been frowned upon. He's been frowned upon. Unless you went to the right schools. And it's only in the last 20 years that the immigrants of the UK have had the privilege of going to those schools. And now they're then being able to step their foot into those circles. And that's a fact. So back to the UK economy... And I, by the way, I 100% agree about the cultural difference between America here. It's, it's, it's phenomenal, yeah. absolutely phenomenal. And we're, and we're looking to go into the States. Uh, well, we've just done a deal with the business influencer. And I've got the copy here, yeah, which, of course, you're going to be on the front cover. And uh, we've just secured distributorship in America uh, with Barnes & Noble, 700 stores. So your face will be hopefully all over America, which will be good. Thank you very much. Which will, which will be good. Which Put will a be... smile on my face and I'll feel quite embarrassed, but not that embarrassed. No. <laughs> so tell me, looking at the UK economy, um, so two questions really intertwined. Uh, one is, you said there's a recession coming. You've been through two, so you're ready for it. You will spot opportunities. Let me say this to you. None of us can ever be ready for a recession because we never really know when it's going to come. Oh, and how deep it is, I suppose. Or how bad it is, or what form it's going to come in. You know, but what I can tell you is we can prepare yeah. for it. Yeah. And I'm starting to prepare now. We, as of, we're completing on a transaction as we speak now. As soon as that one transaction is finished, my finance team will come up and we're going to have uh, to relook at all of our finances and we're not heavily geared. You know, our asset value in um, Wildcrest is in excess of 750 million. Uh, we have borrowings of 80 million. Yes. So we're very low gearing. Yeah, you are. But I need to sit down and go through everything and say, right, okay, if it really does hit hard, because you never know where a recession is going to hit or how it's going to hit, where can we cut costs? My job is to protect the families that are the family of Wildcrest. That's our employees. That's our team. Because they are the family and the life and blood. So my job is not only to protect myself and the company, my job's to protect them. 
Because now we have 400 people within Wildcrest that need protecting. So if there's a recession coming, we don't know when and what it looks like, how does that then sit with what your goals are going forward? Where, where do you hope, what does success look like for you? And I, by the way, I, I guess you're not going to exit, are you? Nope. <laughs> I didn't think so. So we've already, we've already had an offer okay. um, on the table to close to a billion pounds for our company. Yeah. We have no appetite to sell. We own a hundred percent of the company, yeah. And I think that's potentially why maybe my story is so prevalent because there are very few people that have managed to hold a business, continue with the business, and keep the business thriving under their own steam. Yeah. Without other people, without. So, so what are your goals with with the reset? What what does success look like for you then? global domination of the park home industry. If the recession comes, mm -hmm. I understand it will come. It's not gonna stop us, but it may slow us. Will it halt us? Anything can. You must never be shocked at what happens because if you're shocked at what happens, you won't know how to deal with it. It's just how do you get the same result in different outcomes? That's the key. Couple of final questions. Um, you come across as very driven, which I think you have to be. To very? Be driven. I oh, I am. Yeah, for free for you to achieve the success. Um, you talked about you only get what you put in. So if you spend a lot of time on something, then you see the benefits. Um, so my question to you is, how do you manage, and this is a question for the other budding entrepreneurs or other entrepreneurs, how do you balance life and work? Or is, I, that, or is that impossible? I don't. I put business first. I've always put the business first. That may make me a sad person. That may make me a shallow person. Have I been a good father? No. Have I been a good family man? No. I haven't. I've been a hard family man. But I've been a very good provider. I put, as far as I'm concerned, I put the name best within the gypsy community on the map. Mm -hmm. And I made it more than it was. I'm hoping my son can continue that. I hear he's doing well. He's doing very well. I hear I'm he's very, doing well. Very proud of him. Yeah. And I was asked a question, what's the hardest thing as a father that you have done yeah. and I said being hard because the easy thing is to say there you go it's a, you're fine I'll buy you that I'll buy you this because we're filled with guilt yeah. that's the hardest thing but do you know something I'd rather be hard to my children than somebody else be hard to yeah. them and take it all off of them you mentioned never forget where you come from. So is one of the hardest things, particularly when you're successful, is managing that ego. Because ego, if you don't have an ego, you're not likely to come across as confident. If you have too much of an ego, then you're seen as arrogant. And it's managing. But it's a balancing act. L let, me, let me say this to you. 
I have, there are three sides to a person. And this is in all of us. There is the side that we see to our public persona that we put out there. There's the side that we show to our family and close friends. And there's a third side that nobody ever sees. We only show it to ourselves. The thoughts that come in our head only to ourselves. Those are the three sides. When you can be honest enough to admit yourself, admit that to yourself, you're actually on your way to success because you realize you have to be three people. Because without being three people, you can't be true to yourself because you need that time to yourself to reflect on some of the things that you can't show, you can't discuss, but only with yourself. Final question. But before I bring that final question in, just a quick summary. You learned at the age of 20 how health was important because you went through trauma. You said learn if you can through mistakes, but learn through other people's mistakes. You said to recover from somewhere, um, you need gut determination and action and not just walk away. You talked, to, uh, you talked about the importance of remembering where you come from mm-hmm. because that helps you. Uh, you've talked about now just ego, how to manage that ego. You've talked about uh, focus, complete focus, and if you're focused, you'll see the result. You've talked about an output can only be really positive if you put the input. So if you put in the right work, the right amount of work, and you've talked about understanding the uncontrollables and preparing for them, like recession. I thought you said a brilliant thing about a combination of education and streetwise is amazing. So try not to do one with the other, other if you possibly can, because the combination is great. Think about it like this. When you learn to drive a car, you take a theory. That's your written examination, isn't it? Well, they don't just give you the keys to the car then and say, on your way, you can drive. You then have to sit with the instructor and learn how to drive with him. That's the practical. If we did that in real life, can you imagine how dangerous our entrepreneurs and business people would be? Instead, we give them a degree and tell them they're an expert and they've never done the job. I'm sorry, that doesn't work. So my final question is, Quite a bit there. Um, Three tips, very quickly, to somebody who wants to become an entrepreneur. What are the three things they should expect? Absolutely start. Don't let anybody talk you out of it. Start. Don't wait. Start. There's never a good time to start. Do it. Be subjective and reasonable with your views on how you start. Now, when I say subjective and reasonable, don't give your life away to a pipe dream. Because pipe dreams are only ever pipe dreams. And most importantly, be prepared to sacrifice your time, your strength, and many other things if you want it to be 
successful. Because success comes with sacrifices, I'm afraid to say. Alfie, I look forward to the front cover of The Business Influencer. I look forward to greeting you again on the 13th of May in Leicester, because that's where you were born, at the National Entrepreneurship Awards. And, and most of all, thank you for giving us the time. I know you're busy running a billion-pound empire. And, uh, and I look forward uh, to seeing you soon. And hopefully everybody will have enjoyed this fantastic, well, I think so many insights and so many great tips. Look, thank as you I very said, much. As I said earlier, look, the pleasure's been mine, and thank you. I sometimes sit, and when I do a podcast like this, from somebody as influential as yourself, That's very with, to say so. with the awards that you're giving out, and seeing people as being recognised, I don't think you actually realise how much good you're doing because you're instilling them people to make them feel that they've achieved. That's a big thing to somebody when they're in a dark hour and sometimes they've had nobody to step through the floor, so you're doing good. Alfie, thank you very much and uh, well, I'll see you shortly. Thank you. Cheers. Hope you enjoyed uh, this episode, and if so, please do leave a review. It all helps in promoting the podcast. Oh, and by the way, have a great day. <laughs>